0: We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew again. And uh, we actually started here as of last Thursday because the the emphasis on Thursday was basically of encouragement, the certainty of the Lord's authority. And I felt that it was really uh, so pertinent that even in the next day's devotional on Friday morning, I continued on with that. So that's actually where we're going to be, is to continue on with that. So mark that because we will be in chapter 8 of Matthew, while at the same time, I'm going to ask you to refer uh, back to the Old Testament of Numbers, and I'm going to direct your eyes to verse 46 of Numbers chapter 16. Um, I'm going to call this an anchor verse for what we will be talking about today. Um, I'm going to link it with the discipline and responsibility of prayer when there are difficulties, when there are plagues, God wants us to know that we have the resource of prayer. This is a picture of that. It's made commandingly. It is made without compromise, and it is performed with urgency that the people would be saved from the plague. Moses is the one giving these directives. He's the pastor, the shepherd, the prophet of that flock. He directs the high priest, Aaron. In other words, his ministry team to start praying. If I may, please be mindful that we're a ministry team today and God's directive to us, even as this would be pictured with Moses. Remember, God was choosing to be utilizing Moses as his mouthpiece, okay? And God still desires to utilize those who are part of ministry teams, you active in the church, you listening on, to be voice pieces of commands that he gives, of the passion that he has to save, even when others are crying out and calling curses towards God, And scoffing and laughing it's no laughing matter God's in charge and he desires for us to partner with him and to call upon him but here's the remedy right now that Moses saw to right now command his ministerial team member to do verse 46 of chapter 16 in Numbers So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put in it from the altar, put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath is gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Verse 49. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. Besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Moses returned or Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. That last sentence in verse 50 is the emphatic word. It stopped. And it stopped because the ministerial team, Aaron, as he grabbed that censer and put holy incense in it. It's a picture of prayer. It was what was commanded by Moses. We see what seems to be a judgment of God upon the people. And that is true in the Old Testament, God exercised in severity as a judge in his righteousness against the violation of holy ordinance and of law. That's true. What you need to understand is God does not operate in that context. He operates as a father who chastens his children because the judgment of God was given over. In other words, imposed upon his son Jesus for atonement. This is a picture of what atonement required back then, that in judgment, there would be the loss of lives. But God looked at the effectual prayers of a minister who was called the high priest, representing the people before God. That means that what he was doing on behalf of the people, was offering prayers of repentance, prayers of mercy, petitions of grace. And so as the incense wafted up into the air, into the nostrils of God, the plague was stayed. It concludes simply by saying the plague had stopped. So today, just on this verse alone, in fact, I could close this teaching on this verse alone and this challenge. Let's pray. Let's pray throughout our day. Let's touch the heart of God, which is easy to do. You don't have to be on your knees. You don't. You can take a prayer walk. You can, on the errands that you may indeed have to run, be talking to God in your car. You can be sitting comfortably on your couch. You can be at your table. A lot of pastors are inviting the congregation to their kitchens to have a kind of more casual teaching. And we could do that too. But the anchor here and the emphasis is church, pray. Pray believing that you are so linked with Jesus and you acknowledge him as the atonement For the people's sins, because he was. He died in our place. His blood was shed for our forgiveness. And as a result, we have access to God in actually a more intimate and greater way than even Moses knew. So that's our anchor verse today. Let's be a church that prays the stay of the plague. And let's be a church that stands up for God. He doesn't get the blame for this. This is a tactic of the enemy using the viruses and bacterium that exist in this world they're part of the fallout package when man sinned everything went its own way and ultimately to the corruption of itself and these are corrupting viruses but you must remember and be encouraged that God has told us how he has made our bodies. And they are wonderfully made, and they're exceedingly adaptable at identifying these intruders in our body systems, and the white blood cells that are summoned as soldiers within our life fluid go to work. So pray the stay of the plague. Pray for those and our medical community, physicians and scientists, nurses and orderlies who go regularly into the combat zone of, of health vulnerability to help and to assist. So that's our anchor verse today. With that, let's get back into Matthew chapter 8 and let's pick it up. I love this as we're moving through 6 and 7 and and now 8 we're packaging this under really the authority of Jesus the certainty of his authority and in this particular real life episode it just is heart-touching to me <clears throat> because of this man that's being introduced to us. If we're talking about the certainty of the Lord's authority, which he has declared in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. And we now have a man that expresses authority that, in his earthly tenure at this particular time. He has, and yet cannot use. And Everything about his predicament summons him to go to one that he believes can solve his problem. The aching in his heart to intercede for someone who is a part of basically his authority. You'll find this intriguing and I think very encouraging. In verse 5, we'll pick it up there. It's called Jesus Heals a Centurion's Servant. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a certain or a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed That same hour, that's the encapsulation of a glorious moment in the expression of one man's faith that the Lord gives great tribute to, saying he hasn't seen anything like it in all of Israel. Let's see if we can draft from it some component parts to help us understand that in like manner we can come to Jesus has all authority first Jesus has entered in to the area that this man now has arrived and I love it when the word enters is used because we see that Jesus is on the scene and he's made an effort to be there we don't understand fully how it translates in the spirit But we do believe that his words are effectually and undeniably relevant to us. Where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst thereof. He shows up. And it doesn't mean that he's not there when there aren't two or more. Because God has obviously given within us the Holy Spirit. And by agreement, that makes a majority right there. But Jesus does make a compelling point about being together in his name. And so Capernaum, as you know, historically, this was the base camp of Jesus. He grew up in Nazareth, but when he moved into ministry, he found himself in the Galilean region of Capernaum. And that would be, obviously, in what we would call the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful area. Some, I think, compelling observations I'll share with you later. And there was a township in that area. This is where the centurion has come from. We don't necessarily know evidentially that he was posted In Capernaum. He very likely could have been from a detachment that was more likely between Capernaum and more stationed in Jerusalem. So there would have been for him a little bit of a walk, actually quite a bit of a walk. And that tells us the effort that he would make to not simply have a problem solved But to actually come face to face with God, to have an opportunity to connect with God as one who had authority, but one who is under authority and comes to the person who has all authority. You've been given authority. Not absolute authority, but you have authority in your circumstance and situation. God has an expectation on how you use that authority. Parents, husbands and wives, we have an authority within our home. God has an expectation on how we use that authority to bring our children, to bring our marriages into the council chamber of the Most High God to have him in the binding of our nuclear family to the ordinances that he has given to us in his word, to seek him daily for our provisions, to give him thanks continually for his supply. We have authority. It's a little authority. But it's all the authority right now that God would say, do something with. So this centurion right now comes to meet Jesus on his terms and on his ground. How often can we find ourselves bossing God around, dictating the terms by which we will have a parley French for a conversation, terms for our encounter. And so I like what this shows, that we see a man who's coming to the place That was where Jesus was at. So when this all settles itself, my petition as a pastor, and I believe the example given here in this illustration is that we need to come to the place in which Jesus's heart is set. We're all meeting right now by media from our homes, and that's a good place. I believe Jesus is here. But we need to remind ourselves that the book of Revelation opens up in chapter 1 with seven churches that are highlighted. And there's reasons for them being highlighted. There's reasons for them being exhorted. Two of them are commended, and that's the church of Philadelphia and the church of Smyrna. Smyrna, the suffering church through persecution. And Philadelphia, known as the church of love, that's been given a little strength by what authority and that's pretty important to know because in our days right now we have probably that by percentage that just by percentage two of seven churches are being commended by the Lord and that's the suffering church that is not strayed to make things easier on themselves And the Church of Love, who has not compromised the doctrine of love, godly love, agape love, not trying to make things be accommodating to culture, which says it's one love. Oh, but is it God's love? That's the love that we need to come under the authority of not the cultural bent to defining love as whatever it is you want to make it and with whomever it is you want to love. God makes distinction. So the reason I simply moved a little bit from this narrative is because this man, who with no doubt as a centurion, has much authority, is honest in saying, but I'm under authority. And in one sense, he's acknowledging those who have given him the appointment, but in the larger sense, he's coming to the one that he says, you are the authority of my life. This is very unique because Romans didn't worship God. The God of Israel was not their God. Caesar was, and multiplied others who had intricate carved marble statuettes of themselves and worship centers. This indicates that this man was functioning very much as a believer. Maybe in this circumstance, this incident drove him to beyond belief and to secure for himself indefinitely A relationship with God in which a day or two years later, he would lay down the sword and peel off the warrior's uniform and he would take up his cross and follow the Lord. But belief is definitely in play here. The Lord commended him for it enters into the place that Jesus walked and lived. Wonderful. Let's pray that the Lord will open up the houses of worship where we can come, where he abides, where he observes, where the candlesticks have been lit and placed, where he walks among. Let's pray that we get a chance to go back worshiping the Lord and doing the business of God and praying powerfully on behalf of a corrupted world system that all might come to the saving knowledge of the Lord. I like this too. The centurion, as he comes, he pleads with him. A centurion would have been, in that sense, one who would have had military bearing. If you've been in the military, you understand what that means means you have a face that doesn't give way to emotion. You're lockstep in the protocols of holding your emotions in, of being given directives, of expecting obedience upon those directives. You smartly salute, and if not, you will be corrected. You carry your weapons appropriately. Military bearing means it's a stellar profile, of discipline that cannot be criticized in how you are carrying yourself. It's amazing, it's why very often we are impressed with military parades, I personally am. I get stirred when I see that kind of discipline, that kind of lockstep um, esprit de corps in the exercises of the march, in the playing of the instruments, in the handlings of the weapons with bayonets. It's stirring to me that kind of discipline. And this centurion would have had that, but here's what we see. He has a need to plead, a response from the Lord. So it shows me he doesn't think that his office is higher than the necessity to be transparent. He dismisses the military bearing to be before the God whom he's seeking ministerial bearing from, a God that will look at him, the only God that can save him in his time of intercessing. For one, that interestingly enough, To Roman society, actually the entire Gentile communities would not have been a significant person to make an appeal for. Kind of tells you that this Roman centurion was very unique, but God wants to emphasize that too. There's a uniqueness in you, in the place where your vocation is practiced in which maybe military bearing is expected of you and you give it, but you also do not allow there to be the dismissal of ministerial bearing, the heart of God, the compassion for others, the ability to pray and plead on behalf of the plight of others. When he says in verse six, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented, he could be emphasizing a personal servant, another one one who has become special to him because he's by his side. It would not be unusual for a centurion to have, if you would, an attaché, somebody that in the ranks would be able to take commands and distribute those commands to the division of the hundred men that he would be governing over. If you're familiar with the military, Your ranks work in that fashion, second lieutenant, first lieutenant. You have captain and major and lieutenant colonel and colonel and different degrees of generals, and all of them work in a tiered uh, capacity of authority. And if you're the least moving down the officerial uh, chain of command, then you have even a, a different kind of burden imposed upon you. But there are those within the chain of command that serve the one who has all the authority. And this might be a clue as to how there could be a special bond right now. But nevertheless, it's extraordinary because even as such, slaves were considered as simply property. One dies, another one takes his spot. That's just the way they operated. They were replaceable and they were disposable. And this centurion has something different to say about who he is as a man with authority. Let's be those who as well say, I have something different to say in the authority that has been given to me. I could come down hard. I could fire them all. I could dismiss them as nothing because they're replaceable. But there's a charge that's given to us. And truly, if you're a believer, the expectation of God is that we operate differently. We're not compromising what it is that God has given to us to do with the authority. But when you look at the life of Jesus with the authority that he had, he could have changed any situation in any person with just his words. Life could have been extinguished by just a word from the Lord. But what we see him doing is listening intently and understanding deeply the crises of the human condition and wanting to effectually deal with it compassionately and to give the opportunity for faith to be expressed amazingly. The servant has been paralyzed, it would indicate with this particular word, and dreadfully tormented. The tormenting that may be linked with this could have something to do with evil spirits, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Dreadful tormenting could, but not necessarily. Paralysis in itself can suspend the normal operation of the body, while at the same time there can be a torment in what the body has to suffer through. So I've seen that firsthand down in the mission. So let me give you an illustration of that. When you're driving like 14 hours, and you're held in this particular position. There is to some degree a paralysis imposed by that required position. And you begin to be be tormented. What do we do? We look for the closest stops possible. And most of us that are older, we want to get out of that car and we try to stretch. We try, meaning that our joints have seized up, our muscles have contracted. We've been tormented in our position. But this seems to be something that a stretch isn't going to remedy, that physicians cannot solve. By the way, as a centurion, he would have had access to a physician. He could have had a man put his spear on a physician and said, the centurion has need of you. Drop what you're doing. Pick up your medical bag and follow me. But whatever it may be, the dreadful tormenting and the paralysis of his servant is the motivation for him seeking the ministerial resolve of Jesus. And the words from Jesus again are compelling. I will come and heal him. I like that we don't have anything in verse six that that was the origin of the request. It's just that Jesus hears the problem and says, oh, you need healing. I'm coming. Jesus doesn't give him a lengthy interview, doesn't ask of him his spiritual life, doesn't take a tally of how many people he may have had to have arrested or dispatched. You know, in these times, there were those who were called zealots and, and they were, if you would, the resistance of the Jewish nation. They weren't operating but outside the law and their intentions were to provoke and to hurt the Roman invaders. They would have been known as the resistance. We would have called them today the vigilantes of their culture at that time. They had convictions that who had entered into their holy city ought not be there, and they were tired of being oppressed. We can understand that. But nevertheless, Jesus isn't interviewing the centurion on how great his spiritual life has been. Whether or not he's fully persuaded to leave paganism and military life by stirrings that he's had in his heart and perhaps even now the very cusp of being a believer. Jesus just says, I will come and heal him. Is his intention to the one who needs the healing, bypassing the man who with authority has petitioned this? Or is it in fact the centurion that he actually is trying to touch and the beneficiary is going to be his servant? I don't know. Both men right now are going to have the reality of Jesus undeniably ministered to their needs. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. So here's another telling statement. One, he uses the proper term of authority that he's Lord. The centurion, perhaps in rank a general of his day, commanding over a hundred warriors and those who would As well be serving and moving a detachment of that kind forward into battle zones and stabilizing the regions exercising police authority he addresses Jesus as Lord Jesus is friend of the sinner he is indeed the bridegroom of the church but he is with everything notable Lord of our lives And it's an important way to address Jesus. And this centurion does that. It's not just a term he's using. He is expressing with respect and humility the office that Jesus holds in the authority that he has declared himself to have under heaven and earth. And then the humble statement, not worthy that you should come under my roof. How many would have that kind of humility to deny Jesus from coming into your home. Hey, you know, it's okay. I'm fine. I acknowledge your authority, but, you know, from where you're at, it's as far as you need to go. I don't want you to enter my home. Maybe some of us would say that because our home isn't in order and we don't want Jesus snooping around. I say that lightheartedly, but nevertheless, that is sometimes the reason why people are not gallantly and humbly and expectantly reaching out to the Lord for their needs to be met, because things in their life just aren't in order. But I'll tell you this, maybe this centurion didn't have things yet in his life in order, all he knew how to do was to give orders. And he will say that that in fact is what he does, both to those who are militarily under him and to slaves ultimately that will do the work on behalf of him, whatever he says, coming and going. But it's a remarkable statement that we see the centurion giving. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. What a statement for us to be humble before the Lord. I think that's all we need to remember that in our times of need will humility prevail in the authority that we have to call upon the Lord as children of God, as servants of the most high King, sons and daughters, We can get so used to bossing people around, you know, of using, I think at times, insensitivity in just our situations, interpersonally and corporately. Will we be noted as those who, with gentility and humility, exercise powerfully authority? But we did so in a manner that was of no offense, but of no compromise. It's the way that I think we ought to consider. Maybe the challenge in these days in which, you know, when you're, when you're pent up, when you're suspended from movement, your nerves can get a little frayed. Your world becomes very shrunk. And by the way, maybe it's a time in which God would say, yeah, I'm going to shrink things for you to put you into a perspective of knowing how big I am. Because in the liberty that we have enjoyed of going anywhere that we want to go or can go, we can get some big ideas and we can demote God into a lesser authority when we order our lives and forget that our lives are put in order by God. This centurion is behaving like a believer. It's a marvelous thing that we see in the transaction of his language. And this special phrase that he says, speak a word and my servant will be healed. So this is where I wanna go next on this. The Lord has spoken his word. I have areas in my Bible that are marked with the words that God has spoken to me personally as promises, as corrections, as comforting words. He's spoken them to me. I've handled his word. He's authored where it is I take congregations and hearing the word and what I say. But Jesus right now is hearing from this man's mouth, literally speak a word. Notice this, this isn't the word of faith of what a man can speak. This is saying, God, you speak it. You speak it and my servant will be healed. But we've heard in current doctrine and theology that you speak it loudly. I know where people are going on this, but that isn't the way this centurion is presenting himself. He's saying, God, you speak the word. There's power in your voicing of this request that I'm making. If I scream it, If I am passion, according to the promises, my voicing of it, I'm going to sound stupid. And I'm going to be putting way too much emphasis on what I've said, as opposed to what you can say, Lord. That's why we want to give tribute to God, to our Lord, in our times of need. There are times when you may be very passionate and speak very authoritatively the promises of god but i would hope that in that transaction it is to him and it is with reverence and with the expectation that it's his word in what you're voicing that counts not how loud you're speaking it to him not the repetitiveness by which you can order your promises, or even at times risk commanding him in the centurion mentality of authority. Only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And the centurion then again, as we've read, declares that I am a man under authority. I like that too. He has authority, he could have said, I'm a man with great authority. But he says, I'm a man under authority. And I actually like the implication of this because very likely he's looking at the Lord saying, I'm under your authority. To whatever capacity authority Rome had given to him, the first words out of his mouth in now describing himself is that I'm under authority. That's how really you can tell um, at times why men and women are successful in vocations is because in their positioning, they've made themselves small, giving credit to a higher authority. And I can't help but think that really this is that hidden gem in which He's looking into the face of God and he's saying, I'm a man under authority. Very likely this is true. And then he, of course, says that with his authority, having soldiers under me, he can say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and then he says to my servant, do this, and he does it. He he qualifies his area of responsibility, both militarily and very likely personally within his home. You do this, you do that. You come here, you go there, satisfying those parameters of his influence. Same thing as As well goes for us, God's given us authority and we can use it effectively, but we can also find ourselves in the need, in the need of a supernatural interjection by Jesus through his word in that circumstance. That's why some of the best things that you can do is say, Lord, what is your word for me? and this circumstance for that person that I oversee. And that's the beauty of the prophetic office. Comforting and exhorting and edifying those who need the sure word of God. And then we just hear beautifully Jesus marveling Another word or synonymous to this would be astonished, almost as if the humanity of Jesus being caught in this beautiful surprise of dialogue is affecting him. Like, whew, wow, that's awesome. I believe that Jesus saw response from people that in his human demeanor just took his breath away. The giver of the breath of life was affected by the sincere expressions of people in faith and in humility who impressed him in their sincerity. Just, wow, that was awesome. And what if Jesus is impressed with you this day? Because you're pressing into him on the way in this crisis, you're opening up the word and you're asking God that the relevancy of it touches you in this moment and you're giving thanks to God. Because it's the discipline of the believer to give thanks to God in all things for this is the will of God. Yeah, I'm going to sidestep the Thanksgiving today and November's coming. So I'll reserve it for that. And God says, don't do it just around a turkey, but do it right now at your breakfast table. Do it as you you move through your work day. Find in the challenges that you face in the predicament of the pandemic to give me thanks because I listen to it and it's going to change the things that you will be able to see me do. If not, your shutters are down, the blinds are going to be turned and you'll miss the very opportunity of seeing a deliverance that you need to see as you call upon me. I'm just a believer in the weight and prudence of giving thanks to the Lord. Marveling he said to those who followed, Assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Concluding in verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. What? In this same hour is on your heart that you have had a desire to meet the Lord on his terms. And the authority that you have but coming to him is the greater authority over all that you possess. And he sweetly and even awesomely draws breath to go. I am astonished. Rather than, I'm embarrassed that you would ask that, but I'm astonished that you would express to me such faith in what I can do by my words. So may this be something that just you use as inspiration for living this day in his will. And may we find ourselves as a church praying Wouldn't it be great, Church, praying that the Lord allows us to move back into our theaters of worship? The theater was also a Greek term which implied the meeting place of deep transactions, of the voicing of even the political thought of that day. That's at times why we call it political theater, but for the believer, we're talking about spiritual theater in which the drama of life can be played out calling upon the Lord of life to dial all of us in reading from the same script and performing on cue his will to satisfy ultimately his deliverance.